21. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in verse 33 through 46. So lean in and let's, let's hear God's word together. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We need help from God to understand and love his word and see Christ in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for your word. Lord, we love your word. And Lord, we, we all confess here that in this, in this age, Lord, we see dimly 
But God, you're so kind to us to give us light and to clear out the fog and, and give us eyes to see Christ more and more. And God, we pray for that this morning, that you would give us eyes to see the glories of Christ. And please, God, fill our hearts with submission to you, obedience to you. Make us a people that long to obey. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to hear warnings from your word. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't let anyone here be like these men. They were hard-hearted and ignored your warnings. I pray, God, that every soul here would respond, Lord, with repentance and faith. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we consider this text, I want to spend some time just talking about the context that's here. So where, where are we at? So we just heard Jesus tell a parable, and then he applied that parable to the people around him. And I want us to just take some time to remember the context here. So if you remember, this is, we're in the middle of Passion Week, right? So last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified and then, of course, then risen from the dead. But this is Passion Week. And Jesus has taken this, you know, as we've read through the Gospel of Matthew together, if, you, if you're, you're reading carefully, Jesus has taken this long journey all the way to Jerusalem. So he's coming to Jerusalem for this last week on purpose. So why is he in Jerusalem? What's he come to Jerusalem for? And the obvious answer that most people know is he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to pour out the blessing of the cross. He's going to be crucified on a cross, die for sinners, take the wrath of God on behalf of the sinners that we're supposed to take. He, he's about to go do that. That's what he's going there for. So he's going there to bring the blessing of the cross. But what I, what I think a lot of people miss is he's also in Jerusalem. He's not just there to be crucified. That's going to be the, the culmination of it all and then risen from the dead. But he's also there to bring a curse. And so let that thought sit for just a minute. Jesus is in Jerusalem to die for sinners, yes, but also to bring a curse. Not to just bring the blessing of Abraham, but to bring a curse. Not to just take a curse onto himself like he will at the cross, but he's coming to pronounce a curse as he comes to Jerusalem. And I think a lot of people miss that, so I want us to understand it. So if you think about... The section of Matthew we're in, Matthew chapter 21 through 23, it covers the first few days of Passion Week. So Matthew 21 through 23, first few days of Passion Week. And what do we see there? We see in this section, just repeated over and over again, if you read it carefully, you can't miss it, that Jesus is in severe conflict with who? With the Jewish leaders. He's in severe conflict with the scribes. The elders, the priests, those that are the leaders of the Jewish nation. And that's what we see. So as we start, if that's Matthew 21 through 23. So if we take Matthew 21, he enters into Jerusalem 
And the messianic secret gets dropped. Man, no more secret. No more telling people, yes, I'm the Messiah, but, but keep it quiet for now. The, the secret is dropped. He comes in, triumphal entry. He's got crowds all around him. He could have just quietly went into Jerusalem just like anyone else. But instead, he bombards that place. And people are shouting all around him messianic praises. The son of David, the son of David. So he enters in this with this triumphal entry. As soon as he gets there again, he's not going in quietly. He cleanses the temple. He goes straight into the temple, starts turning over tables, driving out money changers, causing a ruckus in the temple. And then what we see for the rest of his time there until he's crucified is he's head to head, sort of like this head to head conflict with priests, scribes and elders. And he is severely rebuking them along the way. The kingdom's going to be taken from you. Prostitute, prostitutes are going to come into the kingdom before you, severely rebuking these men. Now, throughout this section, Matthew 21 through 23, the conflict is going to get worse and worse. It's going to intensify. And eventually it's going to culminate in chapter 23 into the seven woes. Where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he does it seven times like it's this formal curse that he's pronouncing on these people. This formal judgment that he's saying, this nation is under judgment. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then eventually, of course, they murder the son. They kill the son for this. So here's what I want you to understand from this context. What we're seeing in Matthew 21 through 23 is not just Jesus rebuking some really bad men. That's true. He's rebuking some really bad men. But it's not just him rebuking some really bad men. This is Jesus dropping the curse on the nation. This is Jesus proclaiming the judgment of Israel. The Old Testament had promised, you could go read your Old Testament, and, and it promised these curses to Israel if they would not turn, repent, and obey God. It promised that. And here's Jesus to deliver on those promises of the curse to the nation. Jesus is doing, I thought about this, Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. Jesus is essentially doing chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah. And I'm not going to read all of that, obviously. But just to give you a taste of what I mean. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah saw a vision concerning Jerusalem and Judah. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Listen, this is what he, Isaiah says. Hear, O heavens. Give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And what we see in Isaiah 1 through 5 is Isaiah is bringing down this judgment. They are a nation under judgment. Ah, sinful nation, he says. 
And if you think this is something from the Old Testament that the prophets did, but Jesus was just a lot nicer than that, well, they're not understanding Matthew 21 through 23. Jesus is coming to lay down. They're under judgment, but it's not just the judgment that's going to, be, that's going to end in captivity in Babylon, like Isaiah is going to say, but it's deeper than that. Jesus is pronouncing the judgment. I want, to, I want you to listen. He keeps doing this in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of Isaiah. And listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. I want to read a little bit of a longer passage here, so lean in and listen. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning the vineyard. The vineyard. Now look, if you go read verse 7, the vineyard is Israel. The, vi- the vineyard is the people of Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. There's his vineyard, Israel. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Does that sound familiar? Our parable in Matthew 21 and Jesus gives that language of that, that vineyard that's there with the wine vat and the wall and the tower. And that language is meant to draw your attention to this right here. And he looked for it to yield grapes, to yield fruit. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. This is the judgment. I will remove its hedge. It shall, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness but behold an outcry and look at verse 8 woe to those look at verse 11 woe to those verse 18 woe to those verse 20 woe to those verse 21 woe to those this thing that's going on in Isaiah 1 through 5 is what Christ is doing in Matthew 21 through 23 he's bringing the judgment not to Babylon but deeper than that and just like the woes are pronounced here Jesus is going to pronounce woe to you so what I want you to feel from this is what we're reading about in the context of our passage it's not just Jesus rebuking really bad men. What we're reading about is Jesus bringing the curse. Jesus pronouncing the judgment. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Now very quickly, I, I want you to be convinced that's what Jesus is doing. So just let me say just a few things that might help you with that. Why would I think that's what Jesus is doing? Well, one of them should be really obvious. We've already been there in Matthew 21 where Jesus curses the fig tree. Remember that? Why would we get that story in Matthew? you got all this stuff going on, and all of a sudden you get this random story of a tree, a fig tree, that it, from a distance it looks good, green and good, right? And then you get up to it and there's no fruit, and Jesus causes it to wither. Why that story? 
And as we looked at earlier, there's this theme there. Even in our passage today, I'm, think about our passage today. I'm going to strip the kingdom away from you. I'm going to give it to a nation that will bear fruits. That's a theme throughout our section here. That Jesus is coming just like he cursed the fig tree. He's coming to curse these people, curse the nation. Now, another place where you can see this, I want you to go to Matthew 23 real quick. So I keep saying Matthew 21 through 23, and I want you to notice sort of these bookends. So you know what happened in Matthew 21, right? Riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphal entry, straight into the temple, cleanse the temple. And I want you to look at the bookends here. Look at verse 27, chapter 23, verse 27. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the cities that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now think about this as bookends because of this. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, what was being said? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quote Psalm 18. What do we have at the end here? You won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. And by the way, Psalm 18, 118 is quoted all in between, too, even our passage today. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, Matthew 21, what, what do we see there? Him coming in, and he's called the prophet of Nazareth. What does he say here? Oh, Jerusalem that kills the prophets. So I want you to notice this. Matthew 21, he comes into Jerusalem, and he goes and cleanses that temple. And what did we read right here in verse 38? See, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking to these people. He came into his temple to cleanse his temple. But as he's getting ready to leave, verse, chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And as he gets ready to leave, what does he say? He says, your house is left desolate. God's left the building. It's over. And in the next passage in chapter 24 he tells how that temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. So I want you to understand this as not Jesus rebuking a group of really bad men, but Jesus is bringing this pronouncement of judgment, this prophetic pronouncement of judgment on Israel and especially Israel's leaders. Now, one other place you can see this is going to take us right into our text. You see, our text today that, I, that we just read, Matthew 21, verse 33 through 46, it, it refers us back to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, a nation under judgment, and here's Jesus drawing our attention to that because Israel is a nation under judgment. So I want us to think about the parable. The parable is found in verse 33 through 39. We just read it. I won't read it again. But the plain sense of that parable is what? A man owns a piece of land. He plants a vineyard. He builds a wall around his vineyard, okay, to protect it. Animals don't come in, eat the fruit, etc. He builds a tower in his vineyard so you can watch out over it like a watchman in that tower. He builds a wine vat in that vineyard, caring for it, so you take the fruit straight there, make wine right there in your vineyard. And then he takes the vineyard and he leases it out to renters, to, to some tenants. 
And, and this was a common thing in Israel, that, they, that they, would, they would live on the land, they would work the vineyard, they would, they would live off the produce of the vineyard, they would do all that, and the owner would go away. And, and, and the owner's payment would be a certain portion, whatever they agreed to, a certain portion of the fruit would be given to the owner, because he owns the land, Right? And so that time comes, that season for the fruit, and what, and what does the owner do? The owner sends a servant in to get his fruit, and they beat him. And so he sends another servant in to get his fruit, and they kill him. And so he sends another servant in to get his fruit, and, the, and they stone him. And then he sends more servants, and more servants, and more servants, and they stone him, and they kill him, and they beat him, and they humiliate him. And then finally, what do we read? Now, surely they'll respect my son. So he sends his son, and instead of respecting the son, they throw the son out of his father's vineyard, and they murder him. They kill him. This is our parable. Now, in this parable, as I said, it's a reference back. So when you read those details about the tower and the wall and the wine vat, those details are there to make us think of Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is highlighting that Israel is a nation under judgment. That those woes, woes, woes of Isaiah come on Jesus' lips in Matthew chapter 23. Now these details also tell us something about God. They tell us something about God. If you go back and read Isaiah 5, 4, God asks the question, what more could have been done for this vineyard? What more? He, everything that was needed for this vineyard to produce fruit was provided. What more could have been done? There was nothing left that could... That, that could that he could have done to, to make it better. It was perfectly ready. And yet instead of bearing good fruit, it bore bad fruit. It bore bad fruit. Just like Adam, everything provided for Adam, right? Of all the trees of the garden, you can freely eat, but this one tree in the midst of the garden shall not eat. Everything provided for him, and yet he rebels. Same thing with Israel. Everything provided and yet they rebel, rebel against him. And so with Isaiah 5 in mind, I want you to think about it. Isaiah 5 is in view. Israel is a nation under judgment, and it's their own fault. Jesus is going to confront the tenants, the wicked tenants in this vineyard. That's who he's going to confront in his parable. So who are the wicked tenants? We see that in verse 33. The wicked tenants are the people that are that are uh, most directly listening to Jesus' parable. Okay? In verse 45, it's going to say, they perceive that Jesus is talking about them. So they don't get it initially, but they're eventually going to get it, that they are the wicked tenants that murder the servants and murder the son. So the wicked tenants are the priests, scribes, elders, the leadership, the leadership of the Jews. Now I want to highlight something. These men had already been warned. The last prophet of the Old Testament, before everything went silent, says this in Malachi chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. 
I mean, it's sitting right there, this, this warning to them. I will curse you. I will, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. And you should be taken away with it. And just like Jesus cursed the fig tree, Jesus has come. The warning's already there. He's come to deliver this curse as he speaks to these priests and scribes and elders, the leaders of the Jews. Or, as it says in the parable, these wicked tenants. Now, in this parable, we also have the servants that are sent. Uh, verse, you know, verse 34 through 36. Let me read that one more time. When the season for fruit drew near, think about it. He sent his servants. Who are they? To the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Who are these servants? These servants are the, the prophets of old that came to warn Israel again and again and again. Those that came and said, thus saith the Lord. Those that came with the word of God. I want you to listen to this verse. This is Jeremiah chapter 7. Verse 25. Listen to this scripture. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. That's from, from the exodus out of Egypt until captivity into Babylon. The whole history of the nation of Israel up to this point. From that day to this day. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. These servants that are sent again and again and again are the prophets. They go, but they stiffen their neck. They preach, but they stiffen their neck. They warn Israel, but they stiffen their neck over and over and over again. Same thing in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus will go on to say this, 23 verse 24. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. These servants are those prophets, those warnings from God. Repent of your sin, turn, turn away. Now what can we see if we think about the father of that son, the owner of that land, sending a servant. They beat him, send another servant, kill him, send another servant, stone him, send another servant, send another one. What can we learn about God from that? Because God is not foolish. He's not, he's not unwise. So what can we learn about God from that? And what we see there is his persistent patience. Y'all know I love Isaiah 65, verse 1 through 3. I was ready to be sought by those who didn't ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I. I stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good and provoke me to my face continually. Man, the persistent patience of God. He's so slow to anger. Don't you know that? He's so slow to anger. His anger gets revealed. His anger gets poured out. But when it does, it's not a temper tantrum. 
It's not he ran out of patience. No, he showed patience, 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 mercy, mercy, slow to anger. In the right time, his anger gets, gets poured out. Now, in our parable, we also see after the servants are sent, we see the son. Verse 37. Finally, it says, he sent his son to them. Now, obviously, we're being pushed to understand something. No father in his right mind would send his son into this, huh? Something's being taught to us right here. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So the son here is obviously Jesus. And that will become even more clear in the Old Testament quote we're about to look at in just a moment that he quotes. This is obviously Jesus. What does this parable tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about Jesus? That Jesus is the final word from God. Jesus is the last message of the Father. He's the, he's the final word. Would you think about that for just a minute? John uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He, that Word is a He. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. So the Word is eternal before creation, before all things. The Word, the Son, He who created all things, okay? Now, throughout Israel's history, you got prophets sent. Thus saith the Lord. The word from God, prophet sent, thus saith the Lord, a message from God, a prophet sent, a prophet sent, a prophet sent. But one day, you know what happened? John chapter 1 verse 14 says that word from all eternity became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. This is the final word from the father, Jesus, the son in the flesh. The final message from the father. So he doesn't just send in Jesus and the son. He doesn't just send a word through a man. He sends the man who is the word. Hebrews chapter 1. It's a beautiful passage to see this. Let me read it to you quickly. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Listen to this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Listen, God speaks. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Prophet, prophet prophet another servant sent another servant sent he spoke to our fathers by the prophet but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son the final word whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of god the exact imprint of his nature he upholds the universe by the word of his power Jesus, the Son, is the final word from the Father. If you ignore the final word, if you ignore Jesus, if you ignore the Son, there's no hope for you. Now, after Jesus tells his parable, he enters, he enters into a little question and answer. He asks a question and he expects them to answer. Okay, So we see the question in verse 40. Look at it. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So remember, he's still talking to the leadership 
uh, the Jewish leadership, these scribes and elders and priests. And he's talking to them, and he asked them, when, just think about the question going directly to him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What's he going to do? What's the father, what's the owner of the land going to do to these wicked tenants? And their answer comes in verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Now, they do not yet perceive, as it says in verse 45, they'll perceive in just a minute. But right now, they don't yet perceive that they are the wicked tenants. What's he say? What's the father going to do to these guys? They say, those wretches. Those wretches. They're going to be given a miserable death. And the, and the vineyard will be given to somebody else. They don't, they don't yet perceive that they are those wretches. They, they are the, these wicked tenants. So their observation in verse 41 is true. And what does that observation tell us about God? That yes, God is patient and merciful and slow to anger. But understand this. A time will come. A time will come when patience will be no more. And the anger, the holy anger and wrath of the father, the holy anger and wrath of the landowner will come pouring out. And we know this about God from this passage. So he's not quick to anger. But his anger will come. He's not quick to anger, but his anger will come. Now, this is not just about Israel's judgment. This is something we see in the very character of God. This is what he's like. He's patient towards all. He's slow to anger towards all. But judgment's coming. He holds out his hands all day long to a rebellious people who provoke him to his face. But the arms will be let down at some point. And he will pour out his wrath. I think the exhortation to us is don't abuse his patience. Don't go to sleep because he's merciful. Lest you find yourself on the wrong side of his anger with no access to mercy. Because that's coming. And again, this is not just for the Jews. This is something that all people should feel warned about. In fact, I want to read this to you in Romans chapter 11. Listen to verse 20. Through 22. Romans 11 verse 20 says, That is true. They, talking about the Jewish nation, referring back to some of the stuff we're reading about in Matthew, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. And listen to the warning get turned right back on us. For if God did not spare the natural branches, speaking about Israel, Neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So this attribute of God is he's so patient, he's so slow to anger, rejoice in him for this. But also this attribute, it's not going to last forever. A moment comes where his judgment is poured out. His wrath is rightly poured out. Proverbs 29 verse 1, it mentions this person. He who is often reproved or rebuked, but he stiffens his neck. 
will suddenly be broken beyond healing. He who is reproved and reproved and reproved like the prophet, the prophet, the prophet, he came. But he stiffens his neck, he hardens his heart, he shuts out the truth. He will suddenly be broken beyond healing. It's a warning, don't get caught there. Don't be found there. Now as I meditated on this passage, especially this question and answer part, I was reminded of an Old Testament story. I wonder if you remember this. An Old Testament story with David and Nathan. Remember that story? David sinned horribly against God. Adultery, murder. David sins against God. Well, here comes Nathan. And Nathan is going to uh, rebuke him, but he's going to start with a sort of a parable. So he starts with sort of a parable like Jesus starts with a parable here. And, and David gets all riled up about this parable, and he's angry, and the bad guy in the parable, he says, we need to kill that man in that parable, that wretch. We need to kill him. And Nathan turns the corner and says, you are the man. You are the man. And that's a similar thing that happens here. Jesus gives them this parable. These Pharisees and scribes and elders, they're stirred up. Those wretches, they're going to be given a miserable death. And what Jesus is about to do is turn the corner and say, you are the man. Now David repented. But these men aren't going to. So let's look at the application Jesus gives in verses 42 through 44. Verse 42 through 44, we see Jesus lean in. He, he's, he's got them on the hook now. They've, they've said what should happen to the wicked tenants. He's got them on the hook now, and he's going to lean in and explain it. He's going to lean in and apply this parable to them. Now, I want you to think about it. Verse 42, and Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Quick side note, Jesus rebukes with the scripture. Jesus all the time is using the scriptures. He says, have you not read in the scriptures? Grace Community Church has learned from that. Use the word of God. God's words are more powerful and dependable than your words. Use the word. Side note. But I want you to think about right here. He just quoted a verse from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What does that Old Testament quotation, that Old Testament scripture, what does that have to do with the parable? What's the connection? Because Jesus is using this Old Testament verse to apply and explain the parable. What, what are their connections here? Well, think, think about the plain sense of the metaphor. We've moved from a vineyard metaphor, now we're in a building metaphor. The, the, it says the stone which the builders rejected. So you got some builders, can you imagine it? They're wanting to build a building like the temple that they're standing in. They want to build a building, and, and they see one particular stone, and they reject that stone. Now, forget that stone, worthless. And they throw that stone aside. And then they have to, in humiliation, watch the very stone. They're supposed to be the builders. And the very stone they rejected is going to be picked up and made the most valuable stone in the whole building. The cornerstone, or the head of the corner, the foundation stone. 
The stone that holds everything else together. He's, they're going to have to watch in humiliation as that one they rejected is made the cornerstone. Now what's the connection here? The murdered son in the parable, the murdered son in the parable is the rejected stone in the Old Testament verse. The wicked tenants that murder the servants, murder the son, the wicked tenants, the uh, wicked tenants in the parable are the unwise builders that rejected the stone. These Jewish leaders rejected the perfect stone. Can you imagine that? This, he's the perfect one. There's none like him. He all the promise about him. And they reject the perfect stone. Like those tenants killing, murdering the son. In the parable, we see the death of the son. Do you see that, right? Surely they respect my son, and he sends his son, and they murder the son. So in the parable, we see the death of the Christ, the death of the son of God, the, the death of the son. But in the verse, we see his resurrection. You see it? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In the, in the parable, we see his death, but in this verse, we see his resurrection. He didn't stay dead. That murdered son was resurrected. And he becomes the owner of the vineyard. Always was. Now, parables are meant to be like symbolic illustrations of reality, right? But, but they, they don't always mirror reality perfectly, right? They're not meant to be a perfect one-to-one -one on all things reality. And I'll give you a picture of that here, which I think is important to notice. In the parable... The father almost seems surprised, doesn't he? Surely they'll, surely they'll honor my son. Surely. Almost like the father is surprised that the son got murdered. You know that's not reality, right? In reality, the father knew. And we see that in the verse. The stone with the, which the builders rejected, that's his murder, has become the cornerstone. That's his resurrection. And listen, verse, this is the Lord's doing this is the lord's doing it's not a father going man i didn't know they were going to kill my son i didn't know this is the lord's doing this was his plan it was always the father's plan that the son would be sent he would be murdered and killed and die for sinners that he would rise from the dead that he would reign and rule as king it's always been the father's plan you got to listen to this i know i'm reading a lot of other verses I hope it's not distracting to you, but Acts chapter 2, verse 23, listen. This Jesus, this Jesus delivered up, speaking about his death, the rejected stone, the murdered son, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus being delivered up to death was the definite plan of God. It's the foreknowledge of God. This is the Lord's doing, it says in Psalm 118. And then it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now, verse 43, Jesus says, therefore, 
So let me tell you what this parable is all about, right? And, and, and uh, the Jewish leadership gave a good answer. Those wretches should be put to a miserable death and give the kingdom to some, I mean, excuse me, give the vineyard to somebody else, right? That's a good answer. So Jesus explains the parable, gives them a Bible verse from Psalm 118, and then he gives them a therefore in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He says to the leadership of, of, of Israel, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. He's pronouncing the judgment of Isaiah 5, all sinful nation. He's pronouncing the curse of Malachi 2. I'll curse your offspring. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And who's that kingdom going to be given to? Well, after Isaiah's judgment is pronounced, he speaks about one that would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9, a child that would be born, a son that would be given. Mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's going to sit on David's throne. That's Isaiah 9. So Isaiah would seem to think that, that this kingdom would be stripped from them and given to that Messiah. Malachi, as you talked about the curse, did the same thing. The Lord will appear in his temple. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And it's the same thing we see in, in Psalm 118. The verse that he quotes. Who's, who's going to take, the kingdom's going to be stripped from you. Who's it going to be given to? To the rejected stone. He's going to be the cornerstone. The head of the corner. The murdered son. The one you murder is going to rise up and reign. It's going to be given to him. But it will not be given to him as one who's by himself. Because did you see it in verse 43? Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Taken away from you, given to a people, given to a nation. You didn't bear fruit. They're going to bear fruit. I want to again read to you. You don't have to flip there. 1 Peter chapter 2. You know, Peter quotes the same verse, Psalm 118. He talks about the same idea as Jesus being a stone. He says a very similar thing about he's going to be the chief cornerstone. The kingdom's going to be given to him and to all of his people, all his followers, his church, his nation. And listen to how Peter lays it out. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, talking about Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. There's Jesus, that rejected but precious stone, the cornerstone. You yourselves, like living stones, the part of that building, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus is the cornerstone. We're stones in the spiritual house, stones in the building. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and he quotes a Scripture. Listen to what he quotes. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
If you believe in the cornerstone, you won't be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, here's another Bible verse that he quotes. For, for those that do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118. He quotes another one from Isaiah 8. A stone of stumbling. People trip over this stone. A stone of stumbling. A rock of offense. They stumble or they fall. Why? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, and you know this verse, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who it's being given to. The living stone chosen and precious and those stones being built up, that holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in Matthew 21, the kingdom will be taken away from you, he says. It will be given to another people that will bear the fruits of it. And this is those followers of Christ, his people. Now he closes this out with a severe threat. Jesus closes this out in verse 44 with a severe threat. Look at it. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now I want you to notice the, the movement from corporate to personal. Verse 43, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. It's a corporate pronouncement of judgment. And then it gets personal with each individual. The one who trips, the one who falls over this stone, be broken to pieces. And now it gets personal. And just think about the plain sense of this threat here. The one who falls on this stone, it means they're the ones from Isaiah 8. They stumbled over the stumbling block. They saw the stone and it made them stumble. They fell over it. It's exactly what the priest and the elders and the scribes are doing. They are stumbling over the stumble stone, a stumbling stone. And the one who falls in the stone, he warns them, you'll be broken to pieces. Remember, the stone is Jesus. And listen to what he says next. And when it falls, when the stone falls on anyone, it's going to shatter them. It's going to crush them. That's that moment that's coming where he's going to pour out his holy wrath and sinners will be crushed and condemned to hell forever. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when, and here's the warning, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the exhortation here in this severe warning is don't trip on Jesus. Don't trip over Christ. Hear this warning. You remember Psalm 2? Psalm 2 speaks about the nations that are raging. And so, and so it says God, God's going to speak to the nations in his wrath. And what does he say? I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So the word of God's wrath to the rebelling nations and his rebelling people is I got a king that's coming. I'm going to set my king on the holy hill of Zion. And what is he going to say to them? He says, be wise, O people. Be wise. Be wise, O king. Have understanding, kings. Listen to what he says. Kiss the son. That's like bowing down to the king and kissing his feet. Kiss the son. Submit to the son. Bow down to the son. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. 
and his wrath be kindled. And then the last little verse in Psalm 10 says, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Man, kiss the son lest he be angry. Lest the stone fall on you and you be crushed. Don't ignore these warnings. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, how should you respond to that? How should you respond to this? And, I'll, and, and to encourage you how to respond, Psalm 2, you should take refuge in Jesus, in the Son. You should kiss the Son. You should do that because blessed are those that do that. But here's another little phrase. Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and what? Oh, it's marvelous in our eyes. That's how you respond. Respond like that to Christ. Man, this is, this is, I see Jesus. I see who he is. I see what he's done. And man, this is just marvelous in my eyes. The best application I can give you today from this passage is to marvel at Christ. Absolutely marvel at him. Worship him. And if you're here and you're saved today, that's happened in your life. You've seen that your eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ. And I'm exhorting you more and more. Keep going and eyes wide open, seeing Jesus in his word and marveling at the Son of God. You know, that doesn't run out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he comes on that day, so this is all the way until... The future, when Jesus comes back, it says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Man, that's going to happen the moment he returns. His people are going to be there just marveling at his glory. It's marvelous in our eyes. Worship Christ. Best application I can give you. Now, is that what they did? And the answer is no. In verse 45 and verse 46, we see their hard-hearted response. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, did they do like David? David, you were the man. And then David writes Psalm 51. Because <laughs> he's crying out to God in repentance. Did they do that? Scribes, you are the man. Pharisees, you are the man. You are the men. Look at it here. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus was not marvelous in their eyes. And this day coming up of him being crucified was not marvelous in their eyes. Let this bad example be a warning to us all of people that heard the warning the severe warning. They heard the rebuke. They're looking at the Christ and they harden their heart. Let that be a warning to us all. What should you do? And I'm, I'm sure everybody here has experienced this to some degree or another. What should you do if at some point the Holy Spirit puts a finger on you and you perceive that God's talking about you? God's talking about you. What should you do? You should repent, you should turn away from your sin. You should call out to God like, like David in Psalm 51. You, you should turn to him. you got to respond. But they don't do that. So I'll leave you with this. Proverbs 29.1 again says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his heart will suddenly be destroyed beyond healing. 
will suddenly be destroyed beyond healing. healing. Romans 2's version of that. Romans 2 verse 3. Just leave you with this warning. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and, and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Man, he's been so kind. Are you presuming on his patience? Have you gone to sleep because of his patience? Not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, which is what these men had, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. To hear it and stay in a hard heart is just to store up more wrath and more anger from God when that day of wrath comes. Hear that warning and marvel at Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And I pray, Lord, I pray, God, for any soul here that does not know you, Lord. God, please awaken their soul. Lord, I pray that you would help them to to see clearly, open their eyes to see clearly the consequences of ignoring Christ, of, of stumbling at the stumbling block. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not saved, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the glories of Christ, Lord, that you allowed yourself to be rejected and murdered, and you're the powerful one, risen from the dead, still alive. I pray, God, they put their hope in you. Draw them to you, Lord, please. Give them faith, God, to be healed. And God, I pray for your people. Thank you so much for so many brothers and sisters around this room and this meeting. God, help us. Help us to see you, to worship you, to, to marvel at you, Lord. Help us to imitate you, God, and obey you, Lord. Thank you for teaching us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.